And so to see the individual person simply by way of cognitive facility, even though that's part of a well-functioning human, like Christian Smith talks about, nonetheless, we should never reduce an individual to their cognitive capability. So I don't discount cognition and self-consciousness, but we are more than that. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Benjamin Quinn, and in today's episode, we will talk with Dr. Paul Metzger on why we are more than things. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment entitled Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, our very own Nathaniel Williams will talk with Fuzz Rana about our upcoming conference, Exploring Personhood. On February 21st and 22nd, we at the Center for Faith and Culture will host our third annual Exploring Personhood Conference on the topic of Challenges to Humanity. We're delighted to have with us at this conference guests like Dr. George Yancey, John Wilsey, Liz Hall, Jacob Schatzer, and Fuzz Rana, who is here with us today. Dr. Rana is president and CEO of Reasons to Believe. Dr. Rana, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your work. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a biochemist and a, a Christian apologist, and I spend a lot of time looking at uh, really questions relating to origins, the origin of life, the origin of humanity, and a natural extension of humanity's origin is where do we think humanity's future is going to lie? And there's a, a movement today called transhumanism where people are looking at modifying our biological makeup as human beings with an eye towards really evolving human beings into post-human species. And you've talked about that at a lecture here at Southeastern before. We've got a video recording of that. We'll put that in the show notes if you want to watch that. Um, give us a preview. What will you discuss at Exploring Personhood? Yeah, well, what I'll discuss is really why does this idea represent a, a threat or a challenge mm. to our, the biblical concept of humanity and really the notion of, of human exceptionalism and how can we offer a response to that? But then on top of that, you know, how do we take advantage of this idea of transhumanism? What does it represent in terms of our culture? But how can we leverage the interest that people are increasingly having in, in, the, in a transhumanist future uh, to present and make relevant uh, the gospel message? Well, that sounds really interesting. Uh, what are you most excited about at the conference? Yeah, well, I think the the other speakers that I'm going to get to hear as part of the lineup of speakers really makes me excited. I think it's going to be a really full-orbed ex- exploration of really what are challenges to humanity and how as Christians can we uh, effectively engage our culture in a in a way that again makes the gospel message meaningful and relevant. Excellent. It's going to be a great conference. Listeners, you can join us there. Exploring Personhood, Challenges to Humanity, February 21st and 22nd. Uh, Tickets start for as little as $10. So uh, you can learn more at cfc.sebts.edu or click the link in our show notes. Dr. Rana, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. 
Are you equipped to face today's challenges with the gospel? Join us this year for Exploring Personhood, a conference that will be held on campus here at Southeastern February the 21st and 22nd, where we will deep dive into topics related to personhood, such as Christian nationalism, the racial divide, technology, suffering, and more, all through the lens of our Christian faith. Tickets start at just $10, and you can learn more at cfc.sebts.edu. We hope to see you there. We live in a culture of commodification. What challenges does this present to the human person and to human personhood? Here to discuss this today with us is our friend, Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. Dr. Metzger is professor of Christian theology and theology of culture at Multnomah University and Seminary and the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. He's also the author of numerous books, including the one we want to talk about today entitled More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. I want to say that again, more than things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture, a fascinating title, and no doubt will be a fascinating conversation. Dr. Metzger, thank you for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, Benjamin, Ken, and Nathaniel. It's a delight to be with you. Paul, good to see you. It's been a while. I was just thinking, um, uh, the last time we got to meet in person was uh, BC before COVID, uh, <laughs> and so much has happened uh, since then. Uh, in fact, while you're writing this book, my understanding is is that you had some significant issues or things happen in in your life and in the life of your family. We're going to talk about that here in a bit. The idea that we live in a culture of commodification; everything is a commodity. It can be objectified. You, you, you go for, so far as to say that we live in a throwaway culture. What do you mean? So Pope Francis uh, had given an address where he talks about that, and it's in the context of abortion, but it, I think it's to be expanded for him, as with Pope John Paul II, a theology of life, all of life. So an expansive understanding of throwaway is that uh, we easily commodify, reduce people to things, and here he is talking about that in the context of abortion. But And so while I deal with that in chapter three with abortion and Down syndrome, I'm expanding upon that statement in Pope Francis's work to go beyond that to say we live in a reductionistic culture where we reduce people to things so often based on, in, in some respects, a free market society, which Michael Sandel so eloquently engages and addresses. And so that's what I'm, I'm doing there, that we throw away people reducing them to things based on such categories as how are they to be measured by way of their benefit to a free market society. That's one example amongst many that I could I could give. When you talk about uh, people as uh, throwaway objects, I, I, I think about the uh, culture that the early church faced. Uh, the Greco-Roman culture, it was not unusual at all for um, parents to simply cast out their their infants. If if they, they considered the child to have some type of defect, the child was unwanted. If they wanted a girl and they got, or if they wanted a boy and got a girl, I mean, you, it was not uncommon to hear children, infants crying in a dumpster or the, the, wherever the dump was uh, in, in uh, Roman culture. Christianity transformed all that 
in a, in a very good way in that we saw everyone as being uh, uh, in the divine image. How in the world did we return to almost pagan thinking in terms of people where we no longer see them uh, as gifts from God and reflectors of the divine image? Uh, how did this happen? Well, I don't so much get into that theme of where it began, so to speak, uh, but I do deal with the subject of how personalism uh, arose, and the precursors are in the context of patristic theology, and Hansers von Balthasar talks about that theme of how you see it in Trinitarian thought forms developing. Uh, so it's in the West, it's also in the East. You can find personalism in uh, the context of Asian thought, Buddhist thought, I think Confucianist thought, even Taoist thought at times. Uh, so it's it's not alone to Christianity or uh, the Christian West. But in answer to your question, I think similar to what Charles Taylor would do in Secular Age, I think there could be a variety of precursors to how we get here. But what I would want to emphasize in answer to the good question is that you know, when we have the rise of a free market society, what Michael Sandel talks about. So this is not like the cause and the smoking gun, but it's one of many facets of a very complex reality where he says, I have nothing against a free market economy, but what I have problems with is a free market society where the only thing that has value is what benefits the economy. Or we could say what benefits my household or what benefits me. And so there's that. And Jonathan Sachs, the great rabbi from the UK, also made a similar point in terms of what he called the fatal conceit of Judaism to see that values only bound up with the market. And I would extend that. That's the fatal conceit of Christianity when we go that route. So again, reducing people to things, whether we're dealing with uh, Down syndrome fetuses or children. And that's part of what I get into in chapter three, where... Uh, I engage Richard Dawkins' discussion on that theme, and he takes up a particular consequentialist ethics, a uh, particular form of that, to say that they won't have happy lives, et cetera, et cetera. And so I engage that theme uh, from what I take to be biblical Trinitarianism, but open to various philosophical thought forms across the way. You used a term, personalism. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you tell us what you mean by that term? The idea of personalism uh, has been defined in a variety of ways, but here are some aspects that the person is the core of what we are accounting for when we deal with humanity. We're, we're looking them at the, the human as a person. So I'll unpack how I define person uh, and how personalism and with personalist ethics, it's not going to be bound up with any one particular school of thought. So like whether it's deontological, virtue, consequentialist ethics, it weaves in amongst them, but is never to be quantified or categorized according to any of those systems because the person is the fundamental category. Maybe I'll have opportunity to unpack that too. So uh, the person, which is the basis for personalism, uh, we would talk about an embodied self. The human is embodied. Uh, so a human person is embodied. So we must account for the biological foundation of our being, like Christian Smith in his great book on what is a person, phenomenal text, University of Chicago Press. Uh, so we deal with embodiment. Uh, we deal with the subject of consciousness and self-consciousness, that when we think about humans, that that entails that. We think about individual personal agency or individual agency, that each human person has agency. 
but it's never an individual in isolation, but as one in a community of other persons. So it's individual agency, and it also accounts for uh, other persons that were never uh, an individual island to ourselves. And so then lastly, I would want to say that it involves dignity. Dignity is inherent to the person. And what I mean by that, it entails such ideas as each individual person, human person, is unfathomable in their dignity. It's, it's an infinite mystery to account for the human other. One is also unrepeatable, that each individual human person is not a copy of another. So that's going to have bearing on cloning, for example. And then lastly, the individual human person is someone who is unviolable, even when violated, even when someone is violated, ultimately before God, one is not violated. And from a Christian Trinitarian vantage point, I have to account for the vertical dimension as well with the person that each of us and all of us together are human persons creating the image of an interpersonal being, the one triune God. And so we must account for the vertical as well as the horizontal dimensions in thinking about personhood from a Trinitarian biblical vantage point. First of all, incredibly uh, helpful and insightful and much needed clarification when it comes to distinctions between uh, what it means to be a person and how that begins to play out practically. So I want to I want to lean into the practical side here for a minute uh, as we're talking to everyday ordinary Christians and they hear the conversation, they hear us quote the books and they say, yeah, that's I'm glad that you're reading those. I don't have time for those, but I do know that this is an important conversation because my kids are at this or that school or my kids are playing ball with these these people are th those people, and there's all kinds of complicated person, anthropology kind of questions that emerge. So lean in a little more, if you will, to the practical side. You, you mentioned uh, your definition of, of personhood already has immediate application for how we think about cloning. What about some other kind of cultural hot topics that it might also clarify or speak to? Well, we, we mentioned Down syndrome uh, and abortion, that uh, there is such a thing as the Down syndrome advantage and disability paradox that often you'll find that those who might have less cognitive capabilities may make up for it in a variety of other ways in terms of joy, happiness, flourishing in life. And so to see the individual person simply by way of cognitive facility, even though that's part of a well-functioning human, like Christian Smith talks about, nonetheless, we should never reduce an individual to their cognitive capability. So I don't discount cognition and self-consciousness, but we are more than that. Uh, we are more than our gendered biological racial being. It accounts for that. We must account for gender. We must account for racial constructs and the like, but we're more than that. So I want to guard against reductionism. So when I see someone, I never want to reduce them. In all of our political, cultural conflicts today, it's easy for us to otherize, to thingify, as a friend of mine, Marcus Wanson, has said, uh, and to, uh, again, objectify people. Oh, you vote this way? Well, then you're not a person. Uh, we use dehumanizing language of one another. And while we don't want to ignore people's particular worldviews, political affiliations, cultural analyses, and the like, there's still more than that. So we should never reduce them to that. David Brooks had a phenomenal op-ed on this at the New York Times about personalism is the philosophy we all need today because we tend to do that in our culture war thinking. If someone doesn't vote the way I do, and this is on the left and right, uh, you know, we we use dehumanizing language. And rather than trying to see, okay, who's the person 
behind it. One of my favorite movies is As Good As It Gets, where uh, the artist Simon says, if you look at someone long enough, you see their humanity. And I think we always need to probe for the person that's there in the midst of all, rather than objectify and reduce them to whatever it is we, we struggle with. So persons can never be quantified um, as humans creating the image of God. The very notion of persons fairly pretty slippery. Uh, it, 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 it is uh, some of the best philosophers and ethicists have struggled with, okay, what is a person? I mean, mm-hmm. in the ancient world, person seems to have been uh, a function that, that one mm-hmm. fulfilled. Uh, Roman citizens were persons, slaves were not, which is one of the reasons why it was impossible for a Roman citizen to rape a slave girl. She's not a person. Uh, then the, the New Testament uh, and the message of, of the gospel um, has a very egalitarian uh, impact. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, all are one. God is no respecter of persons. So mm-hmm. now we're all persons. Right. Uh, that had such a profound transformational uh, uh, effect upon, upon uh, the Western way of thinking. Children for Jesus were seen as persons, right? They weren't half humans. Let the little children come unto me. So it's like a exactly. rapid in the ancient world. Exactly. And so then we move into the modern world in which um, persons are almost defined in operational tar- uh, terms. Uh, you, you, you're you a person if you have X, Y, and Z um, uh, traits. Well, okay, what if someone is in a vegetative state? What if someone doesn't, you know, so you have all of those kinds of, of, of difficult questions are, you know, are, is AI a person? Well, I think, well, I I think the question is almost, there's a category error going on here. Uh, And so that, so I think in many ways, the question's a non-starter. So how do we apply then practically um, what you're talking about? Uh, in the everyday world, uh, you've you've given some great illustrations. Um, I'm thinking now of, of end of life issues and things of that. Uh, so, what what kind of advice would you have for the busy pastor who's trying to help somebody sort through uh, some of those questions uh, that that uh, are raised by the very idea? You know, am I still dealing with a person? I'm thinking now here in very practical terms. Uh, because I've got some friends who are dealing with loved ones who are slipping away because of dementia and things of that nature. Even though they'll feel like this is no longer the someone who I was married to for 50 years, they've 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 been so affected by this disease. How do I how do I still treat them with dignity and understand them to be a person? Well, this is my family situation with my son in his minimally conscious state. So that, you know, it is one of the the greatest complexities and challenges that we have because Christopher is a person with inherent dignity and worth from my vantage point and from what I take to be a a biblical Trinitarian vantage point. And so when a caregiver at the facility says, we want to put a cover over him to affirm his dignity, I don't know where she's coming from. I value greatly that statement. Is that simply what she was taught or is her philosophy of life somehow rooted in a Judeo-Christian understanding of things. But my son has, as do these individuals with dementia, I think inherent dignity and worth as persons creating the image of God. And uh, if you don't mind me just unpacking very quickly, uh, there are three, at least three ways of uh, approaching the person, and that has a bearing on 
people with severe disabilities, people in uh, states of dementia, and someone like my son in a minimally conscious state. And that is that one could look at it in substantialist terms, that if you don't have a rational capacity, you're no longer a person. Um, I find that problematic, but that's often how the West has portrayed it. We have a very strong rationalist uh, tradition, Kant, uh, Aristotle before him, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't see things that way. Uh, there's the functionality point. I think you see this in Peter Singer, the great ethicist uh, out of Princeton. Uh, but he had trouble with that, and he acknowledges that when it came to his own mother dying of Alzheimer's, he kept her going against her wishes as a medical doctor that she was. And he said, I guess it's harder. And I, I, I respect him for honestly confessing this. I guess it's harder to live out one view, one's views when you're dealing with loved ones. And, and that's exactly right, because while I don't hold the situational ethics as my modus operandi, I do think every ethic is situated and will it work in real life? And it was not possible for him. And then I think the kind of more theological orientation uh, is that one is creating the image of God. And because our, our identity is not bound up with substance or functionality or simply how the culture might provide preferences for this or that individual or group of people, um, I would say that ultimately it's bound up with what I'd call ontological considerations of the highest level, namely God's affirmation of us. Now, I still have to argue for that in the context of a pluralist society, which I do at length in the book because I, I talk about entangled ethics. So I, I want to engage that because a lot of people won't affirm our Trinitarian vantage point, our biblical vantage point. So I, I try and engage those constructively. And so, but that's where I'm coming from is that I see the individual person, even the one in a comatose state, et cetera, et cetera, my son in a minimally conscious state as being a, a full person, even if their cognitive capacities are greatly diminished. Mm -hmm. And and I always want to operate by that vantage point with every individual person, whatever the subject matter we're dealing with. That's really helpful, Paul. Your language there, just to to kind of summarize and cap it off, full full personhood, even if diminished capacities. I think that's that's just helpful for us to clarify our own thinking, even to relate to pastors and ministry leaders as they do minister to people um, sort of across the spectrum with these types of experiences. I want to ask a question. I probably should have asked this earlier. It's a bit out of order, but I've got to ask you. Uh, I think often uh, anytime I'm teaching on anything related to anthropology, I almost always make the comment, you know, Jesus is the most fully human person ever to live. And I, tr I thoroughly believe that. I don't know that I know all of what that means. I just think it's really true. And I'm curious how that informs the way that you're approaching the conversation of personalism. Well, he is the ultimate human, and uh, uh, as you say. And while we all have that potential bound up with our identity given to us by God, the triune God who is revealed in Jesus Christ, even so we all have that potential and through the Spirit can become truly actualized in terms of that, what I'll call teleology, that that end game, so to speak, in Christ is all things will be made new through the firstborn of all creation, you know, Colossians 1. That, you know, with Christ, when we think of him as the great human or as a secular humanist friend of mine at Yale says, uh, Tom Crattermaker, uh, the communications director at Yale Divinity School, he's the great humanizer. So he sees Jesus as a secular humanist mm -hmm. as the most compelling human he's ever come across. Mm -hmm. And just what Ken was talking about before, like how Jesus engages little children how he engages various outsiders. You know, we could talk about the orphan, the widow, the alien in their distress, the prostitute. His view of table fellowship was so radical. 
Um, mm. That's all entailed with how we engage personalism, Jesus style. So mm. yes, in the book, he is my telos point. He is the ground, the grid, and goal of creaturely life. And so uh, I want at every turn to be thinking about this, like with C.S. Lewis, and I conclude with this in the book, The Weight of Glory, you know, we have never met a mere mortal. Uh, mm, everyone yeah. is immortal, and it's ultimately in and through God, Son, Jesus Christ, the, the ultimate human, the Son of Man, through the Spirit. I want to see everyone through Christocentric lenses, first and foremost, the church, but with potentiality for all people, uh, you know, so to speak, in, in and through Christ, because all people are created in the image of God, not just the church, but all people are created in the image revealed in Jesus Christ. The ground grid and goal, Paul. I'm 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 straight stealing that from you. I'll, I'll try to remember, <laughs> okay. note, but I'm just telling you hey, now. I'm taking that. That was good. We're we're, we're all uh, riffing off of one another. We're all riffing <laughs> off. Of good, um, Paul. This is fantastic. Let me let me mention the name of the book again. Uh, this is Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. The title of the book that we're discussing here is "More Than Things: A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture." Paul, tell us quickly where can people find the book and how can they follow your work. Well, one of my favorite bookstores is out of Pennsylvania, out there on the East Coast, Hearts and Minds, Dallastown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Byron Borger, who I just did a, an event for another book last night with, um, he's phenomenal. I always want to give a shout out to Byron Borger, Hearts and Minds Bookstore in uh, Dallastown, Pennsylvania. So you can get it there. Of course, you can get it through all the major distributors. You can get it through InterVarsity Press. Uh, there is a free download study guide of like 75 pages. It's a free download at the website for InterVarsity, and that's to help an individual, small group, and classroom context. It took a couple of years, several years to write that thing, but it's a free download. But you can get it through all the major uh, retailer distributors. But I always want to give a, a shout out for uh, those independent booksellers, too, um, yeah. because they're often lost in the big yeah. uh, industrial revolution, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And in terms of following you, are you on social media or other places, a website folks can follow you at? PaulLewisMetzger.com. I'm at Facebook. I do get on Twitter and a couple of other places too. But yeah, Paul Lewis Metzger, uh, people can find it easily enough. But uh, and then we have the work of New Wine, New Wineskins, new-wineskins.org that, again, we need to update our website. <laughs> so I'm too busy with these other important endeavors and especially my son. So, so, so if I heard you right, uh, there is a free uh, 75 page study, study guide uh, yes. that, that accompanies your book. I think that would be very helpful for anybody who's wanting to use it in a small group. Uh, and that's at InterVarsity Press. That's right. They go to the web page for it for more than things, you know, the book. And if they look down, there'll be like a press kit and, you know, that's available to people. And then they added their reader's guide. So reader's guide, it's a PDF that one can easily download right from there. Paul, thanks for letting us know about the 75-page study guide there. We will link to that in our show notes so that our listeners can go straight to the IVP website and get it right there. Excellent. Paul, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you all. Now it's time for our listener favorite segment on my bookshelf in which our guests, friends, staff, faculty at Southeastern, they tell us what they're reading right now or sometimes just a favorite book of theirs that remains perpetually on their bookshelf. We just interviewed Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger about one of the books he's recently written. We've held him hostage a little bit longer to ask him this question. Dr. Metzger, what's on your bookshelf? A book that I'm currently reading 
is the difficulty of being good. Uh, it's on the subtle art of Dharma by, and I hope I pronounced this correctly. I was trying to locate the pronunciation, but Gakaran Das, a, a best-selling author, author of India Unbound, but the difficulty of being good on the subtle art of Dharma. And then when I recently, or I finished uh, a bit earlier this year, um, book on Taoism by uh, Thomas Merton, The Way of Chong Tzu. And so those are books that I'm working on for a forthcoming book with IBP Academic as I'm uh, engaging, rethinking how to address world religions. And so these are two books and then uh, going to do more deep reflection on that uh, excellent text, Secular Age by Charles Taylor. Dr. Mesker, thanks for joining us both for the podcast as well as for the On My Bookshelf segment. It's an honor to have you today. It's an honor to be with you all, colleagues. Thank you so much for the privilege. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed it, and we know that you do, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.